You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. What's in their heart? What's in their heart needs to be cleansed? You may look good on the outside. You may say all the right things. You may know all the Christianese language. Praise God, brother. Praise the Lord. You may know all that, but what's happening in your heart? Has the transformation taken place in your heart? Because that's where it happens, in here, in your heart. What's in your heart? In today's message from Pastor Dave, he encourages you to examine yourself from the inside. Transformation takes place within the heart. Like the Pharisees, you can look good on the outside and say all the right things, but not have any lasting transformation. God looks into your heart. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 15 with his message, Witness for the Defense. Acts 15, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verses uh, 11, so if you will follow along silently, I would like to read aloud. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they You know, every conflict, at least everyone I've been in, has two sides. And each side longs to be heard. Each side wants to get their point across, justfully so. But sometimes when the conflict becomes so great and the solution to the problem seems so far away and the two parties can't agree, it ends up in front of a judge or a jury or a group And they decide which of the two is the most correct. You've all seen the courtroom TV things. There used to be a channel called Court TV where you could watch it. And, you know, everybody was familiar with the, I think the O.J. Simpson trial was one of the first ones on, you know, for a long time. And then all the other things that have passed. The two sides come together and they're represented. The prosecution, well, they present their case and then the defense presents its case. Each side presents evidence to prove their point. From this evidence, a decision is made. They make this decision in favor of one side or the other. Most of the evidence that is brought forth is done by the testimony of witnesses. 
These are people who come forth and they testify. In other words, they tell what they know about the conflict in mention. A definition of witness is someone who furnishes evidence of proof for either side. In fact, in legal terms, a witness is someone who has, who claims to have, or is thought by someone with authority to compel testimony to have knowledge relevant to an event or other matter of interest. Now, there are several kinds of witnesses. There are several kinds of witnesses. The first being the hearsay witness. This is a person who testifies about what someone else said or wrote. I believe this person is the dangerous person because they always seem to add to what they've heard and kind of distort sometimes the truth. But there are hearsay witnesses. Then you have the expert witness. This is a person who is supposed to have specialized knowledge, which is relevant to the matter of interest. They're purportedly, it helps either side make sense of other evidence, you know, like um, DNA, like documentary evidence, like physical evidence, uh, medical information, that kind of stuff. Expert witnesses are called forth. The next person is the, re- the reputation witness. We call them the, um, the character witness. They come up and they give about, tell about the person's character on either side, trying to help the whatever side they're on show their point and prove their point. But the best witness on either side is the eyewitness. The eyewitness, the one who has and testifies of what they perceive through their sense of, whether hearing, touching, smelling, or seeing. Now, what they've seen and heard or smelt or even touched gives them firsthand knowledge about the situation. And this is the best witness to have. After these witnesses have presented both sides, you know, the final statements are made and then the decision is made. This is basically what's happening in Acts 15. There was this huge dispute between the Judaizers, those are the ones who wanted the new believing Gentiles become circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And this dispute was between them and the doctrine of grace by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ that one could be saved. Not by works, but solely by faith. This dispute was so great that they had to go to the church of Jerusalem and allow the apostles and the elders to actually hear the case and decide what they're going to do about it. The deciding body was called the Jerusalem Council. Wiersbe says this, he describes the council this way. The gathering was not a church council in denominational sense, but rather a meeting of the leaders who heard the testimonies of each group, and then they made the decision. Well, when did the dispute begin? It began when we read last week in Acts 15.1, when men came down from Judea, basically Jerusalem, And they began to teach the Gentile churches that who were believing that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. We read that in Acts 15.1. When Paul and Barnabas objected to this teaching, a major dispute followed. In fact, in Acts 15.2, it says, no small dissension and dispute. This was a big argument. There was a lot at stake here. There was a lot of things riding on the line here. So the church at Antioch, which is where all this was taking place, decided, and it was a very wise decision, that they were going to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders to settle the matter. 
We read that in verse 2 again. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. As Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they are greeted and welcomed by the elders and the apostles. The Scripture says they were received, which is a good thing. They received them into their midst. And once they were there, Paul and Barnabas begin to tell the apostles and the elders of the church all the wonderful things that happened in their missionary journey that we studied in the last several chapters as our look through Acts. Everything that happened in Antioch of Pisidia, everything that happened in Iconium, everything that happened in Lystra and Derby, and all along the way, and all the wonderful things that the Lord had done in the Gentile churches and how many people were saved and how many through the wonders and signs that the Lord was giving them and how the Holy Spirit was coming upon these people. What a wonderful time this must have been. But when they had finished reporting all these things, something happened. Something happened. A very, very important group stood up and basically sided with the Judaizers. And they basically became Judaizers themselves. And this was those Pharisees who were believing now in Jesus Christ for salvation. They said, it is necessary to circumcise them. They're speaking about the new Gentile believers and command them to keep the law of Moses. We read that in Acts 15.5, which is where we ended last week. So not only did the Pharisees stand up and agree with circumcision, but they added and follow the law of Moses. So the yoke that they were putting upon the Gentile body got heavier. Not only was it just circumcision as it started out to be with the um, Judaizers, but now it's the law of Moses also. So now the yoke and the anvil gets even higher. But the church is coming together to decide this issue. They just don't let it go away. They don't sit on it. They don't leave it up to the conscience of each believer. They don't say, well, let everybody decide for themselves. No, they act upon it. This was a major issue, and it threatened the actual life of the church itself. Remember we've been talking about, and I think we've mentioned it here in the book of Acts. We've also mentioned it in the book of Ephesians. They were afraid that there would be two Christian churches, a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. They were afraid of that. The Jews never accepting the Gentile Christian church as legitimate because the Jewish church would obey the law of Moses. They would have circumcision, whereas the Gentile church would strictly be by grace. They did not want this split to happen, and this was false doctrine. David Gusick describes the task before the council this way. The question raised by the Jerusalem council was immense. Are Christians saved by faith alone or by a combination of faith and obedience to the law of Moses? Is the work of Jesus by itself enough to save the one who trusts in Jesus? Or must we add our work to Jesus in order to be saved? Wow. Think about that. What you decide when you think about those questions and what you're deciding is, was the work on the cross of Jesus Christ good enough? That's what you're deciding in this situation. And that's what these people are deciding. Was his work on the cross good enough? Or do we have to add something to that? Think about that. It's a scary thought. That's a real scary thought. So you see what was in front of them and why this was such a major decision. If the council agreed that it was Jesus plus something, Paul and Barnabas were going to have to retrace their steps. They're going to have to go back to every city where a church was planted and say, oh, well, yo, hang on there. Hold that thought. You got to be circumcised. 
and you got to follow the law of Moses. They would have to tell these new Christians that they had to become Jews in order to be saved. This would place them under the law. It would take away the freedom they had in Christ, and it would put them in bondage. Christ's work on the cross would have been in vain. So you see the immensity of this, of this dispute. As we begin today, we look in verse 7, it says, and there was much dispute. This was a serious matter. They were just sitting around discussing this over a cup of coffee. I'm sure there were hot heads. I'm sure there were tempers. I'm sure there were shouting and pointing. I'm sure some of them even wanted to get up and tear their clothes. They even wanted to get up and, and rent their clothes because they were, they were thinking that what was being taught was blasphemy. This was no small dispute. This was a very serious matter. The life of the church was at stake. The future and the doctrine of salvation was at stake. There was no shortcuts here. Gusick again said about this dispute, this would have been amazing to see. Christians serious enough about the truth to dispute it. Christians today need to get serious about the truth. We need to get serious about what we believe. We need to get so serious that we're able to stand up and say, this is what we believe and convince people that that's what we believe. It's time. It's high time. Our faith is being attacked from all sides. Our faith is constantly being attacked. You have gay marriage being forced down our throats, not let alone abortion, all sorts of attacks from the liberal media. We're constantly being put down and put asunder. We're constantly being challenged. And we are backing away, folks. We're backing away. We need to stand up and say, no, this is what we believe in. This is true, and we will stand by this. We need to be heard. We need to stand up for righteousness, and the time is now. Also, I believe the time to be short. I believe the time to be very short. And there are many people out there who do not know the Lord, who are all unsaved. And we need to be a light in the midst of the darkened place. We need to find those people. They need to hear the word of God. They need to be convinced that Jesus is Lord and accept him and move in. We can't spend time placing all these rules and regulations on top of their head. It's time, church. It's time. And what a better time to start than on the days we celebrate our nation's freedom. Remember, our nation was founded on these values. Our nation was founded on Christian ideals. We can't step away. It's our duty as Christians to stand up and be counted for righteousness. So we have this dispute. We had these two sides. On one hand, you had the Judaizers. These were Jewish legalists who were accustomed to the traditions and rituals of Judaism, along with the Pharisees who studied and taught the law all their lives. Lloyd Ogilvy put this in like, he said, the stability of the Pharisees' training in Hebraism, Hebraism is his immersion into Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family when he was circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and the wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees teaching and studying scripture. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew into full manhood and earned his status as a Pharisee. And consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes as a religious leader. And then 
into their lives, and this is a well-ordered, well-structurally, neatly organized life, comes the claims of Christ. And all of a sudden, they're converted. They're born again. And they have faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They feel complete now. But their family thinks they're dead. Their family says, you're dead to us. You don't even belong to us anymore because of their association with our Savior. Think of that. Think how they were feeling. R. Kent Hughes says this, they were not bad people at this point, but given the time, and if they held tightly to their views, this would pull them away and so far away from the doctrine of grace that they would become apostate. They would become apostate. You know, every one of us has a background. Every one of us has come from someplace. And we all are influenced by our backgrounds. And each of us, probably along the line, have experienced some doctrinal or misapplication of Scripture. Maybe an error in teaching, perhaps, or even a bad experience. We need to challenge ourselves to identify those points of error and look for the misemphasis before we drift too far away from the Lord. Well, I'm just a little off. Well, a little off is way off. Excuse the expression. Like being a little pregnant. No offense to any pregnant lady here. If you're off, you're off. Far off. So, on one hand, you had these Judaizers. On the other hand, you had these eyewitnesses of God's grace being poured out upon a group of people. A group of people that were so hated they were called dogs. A group of people that the Pharisees would walk across the street without even talking to. They saw him coming, they would walk the other way. Grace of God poured out upon these people. The Holy Spirit fell upon these people. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, they saw this with their own eyes as the Lord poured out his grace and his spirit upon these new believers. These new believers didn't even know what the law of Moses was. But God's grace was poured out upon them. God's mercy touched their hearts. Now this dispute is in front of the council, and the council's listening, and they're standing there listening. And finally, finally, Peter jumps up and he begins to speak. <laughs> I love impetuous Peter. I wonder how long he sat there before he spoke. I wonder if he started to tap his foot. And he sat there and he was so excited about speaking. He wanted to get up there and speak, man. He, he was ready. You know, Peter, come on. He wanted to get in there. He, I got to get in this conversation, man. I'm going to let him have it. I can't wait. Shut up, will you? I want to talk. You know, I love Peter. We all can relate to Peter. Come on. We've all been Peter at one time and another. We know that. Peter becomes the first eyewitness for the defense. He took everything in as he sat there, and and when he could take it no longer, he rose to his feet, and he says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Acts 15, verse 7. Peter begins to recount all the things that the Lord did with him at Cornelius' house. Remember when we studied in Acts 10? Peter is an excellent eyewitness because he has firsthand knowledge of how the Lord saved the Gentiles. He was there. He witnessed this with his own eyes. He probably told them about, he says, guys, I never even finished speaking and the Holy Spirit fell upon him. I had this great message all ready to go and the Holy Spirit beat me to it. He fell upon him and they were saved. Peter tells the council, so God knows the heart. Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us in Acts 15.8. I love this statement, God knows the heart. 
I love that statement. God knows the heart. What is God most interested in in you today? Is he interested in your outward man? Or is he interested in the inward man that's being renewed day by day? I found some great scriptures that might give you a clue as to which way God would lean. The prophet Joel, in Joel 2.13, says to the nation of Israel, Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. It's your heart that needs to be rent and open to God. They used to tear their garments when they thought blasphemy was being taught. And I love Matthew 23. I love the woes of Matthew 23 as Jesus rails against the Pharisees, rails against their pharisaical teaching and their rites and their traditions and their rituals. Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside are full of extortion and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. What's in their heart? What's in their heart needs to be cleansed? You may look good on the outside. You may say all the right things. You may know all the Christianese language. Praise God, brother. Praise the Lord. You may know all that, but what's happening in your heart? Has the transformation taken place in your heart? Because that's where it happens, in here, in your heart. My favorite, Matthew 23, 27, and 28, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. That was a pretty, pretty big rebuke. Are we whitewashed sepulchers? What did Dave call us? Sunday saints, Monday ain'ts? We come in here and praise the Lord, have a great time of fellowship, and then leave that door, and all of a sudden, whew. As God looks at you today, is he looking at that outward appearance, or is he looking at your heart? Well, according to 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, he told Samuel what he was looking for when Samuel brought out some of Jesse's sons. So it was when they came, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed his before him. But the Lord said unto him, Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see man as man sees. Does not see as man sees. For man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, at the heart. What is your heart saying? What did Jesus say about your heart? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. God knows our heart. God knows why we did what we did, and he knows the motives behind what you did. God knows those that have made a true profession for Jesus Christ, those who have made a true profession of faith, and God knows those who are faking Those who are just playing games, you can't fool God. You may fool me, but you are not going to fool the Lord. Our time with you is running short for today's edition of A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave will continue this journey through the book of Acts when you join us next time. But for now, you can listen to this teaching and others from this series online at assurehoperadio.com. We'd encourage you to download these messages so they are available wherever you are. 
We know how busy life can get. But there's always a time to pause, even if only for a few minutes. Those short breaks could be filled with the study of God's Word and the uncovering of treasures from its verses. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, gaining access to the latest messages as soon as they're posted. Find out more at assurehoperadio.com. If you're looking for a church family and happen to be in the Cape May area, we'd love to have you come join us for a time of worship and Bible study. Calvary Chapel Cape May meets weekly on Sundays at 10 a.m. And we offer nursery and Sunday school where your children will be well cared for as they learn about the love of Jesus. Give us a call for more information. Our number is 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. Thanks for listening to today's message from the book of Acts. We pray you continue to be blessed as you study the Word and that you'll discover Jesus working in your life. Pastor Dave will be back soon for another in-depth look at this New Testament book right here on A Sure Hope.